0: Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host Andrew Schiestel and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. James Morton for a conversation about Byzantine canon law. Dr. Morton is a British historian of the Byzantine Empire in medieval Europe. He's an assistant professor in the Department of History at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, based in Hong Kong, and he's author of the book, Byzantine Religious Law in Medieval Italy, which was published by Oxford University Press. And he joins us today from Hong Kong. Welcome to the call, James. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you. It's great to have you on the show and to chat with you today. And I guess it's 8 o'clock Toronto time, as we chatted about, and it's 8 p.m. Hong, to- Hong, to- Hong Kong time, right?
1: Yes. So it's, it's both a good morning and a good evening for me.
0: Love it. Love it. Okay, so let's start with a broad question to create some parameters for the conversation and we can work our way through the topic. What was Byzantine canon law? Uh,
1: that's a good place to start. So for your listeners who may have uh, heard your previous interview with Dr. David D'Avrae, uh, you may be familiar with the answer to this question, but I'll summarize it again yeah, just please. briefly. Yeah. So Byzantine canon law
0: is, uh, of course, the canon law of the Byzantine
1: Empire and uh, really the canon law of the Byzantine Empire originally is just the canon law of the Roman Empire because the Byzantine Empire is the medieval uh, remnant, you could say, of the ancient Roman Empire. Now, the word canon is originally a Greek word. Um, It uh, means a rule or a measure. uh, So you can think of it as something like a a ruler, uh, a measuring stick. So the the canons in inverted commas uh, are rules or guidelines uh, for regulating the life of Christians and regulating the life of the Christian church. It's something that emerges out of uh, ancient Christianity. So Originally, these are basically rules or guidelines. Eventually, over time, they come to form the basis of a quasi-legal system. I'll say more in the interview later on, probably, about why I call it a quasi-legal system rather Mm -hmm. than a a formal one. Mm -hmm. But we can see it as the legal system of the Christian church within the the bounds of the Roman Empire. After the fall of the Western Roman Empire um, and the... The survival of the eastern roman empire which we refer to as byzantine this would take on the the shape of medieval byzantine canon law Uh, and we can get into the question of how that differs from other kinds of medieval canon law as well later on now today of course there are lots of different christian denominations like the catholic church the anglican church the eastern or greek orthodox church Uh, They each have their own different uh, legal systems, their own different canon laws. But in the uh, medieval periods, these distinctions were still not very clearly defined. Medieval Christians still viewed themselves broadly being part of the same church. Uh, But this was the time period in which the distinctions between what would later be called Catholic and Orthodox canon law would start to emerge. And uh, just to be clear about this, the canon law that, as it developed under the Byzantine Empire, would become more or less the foundation of the canon law of today's uh, Eastern Orthodox Church.
0: Okay, you at the end there uh, pegged one of my questions, but I'll, I'll ask it, and in, in, so we can kind of uh, allow you to expand on that piece of how you know the remnants and how it's uh, been passed on uh, today. Um, I, yeah, I think I think the second question I'd asked Emeritus Professor Davray was uh, what's the etymology of canon law. So you anticipated that that might have been the second question I was going to ask today. So you answered that. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so where and when was where and when uh, was Byzantine canon law believed or or certified to have been started?
1: Right, so this is a very difficult question, and actually a lot of these questions that we might naturally have about the medieval church, and about medieval Christianity, really don't always have such clear-cut answers as we would like. And so the simple short answer to your question is, we can't point to a single moment in time when Byzantine canon law began, so to speak. Byzantine canon law, in a sense, came into existence simply as Christian canon law, the canon law of the Christian church. And as I said a moment ago, it developed very gradually over time in gaining its own uh, character specific to the Byzantine Empire. But I'll start with the beginning just briefly and we can work our way up to Byzantine canon law over time. Please. Oh, and can you so, do
0: this? Sorry, James. Can you do this as well? Because um, I think this is going to feed into probably what you're saying. In case someone's someone's listening and saying, okay, you know, I generally know what Byzantine Empire, you know, was. Uh, but how, you know, there's the Roman Empire, the Byzantine. Can you try to kind of envelope that piece into your answer as well? Like why there is a need to uh, have a Byzantine uh canon law and perhaps it's it was just evolutionary but can you try to kind of address that um question as well sure. okay yes go for it yeah please okay so uh
1: if we go back to very briefly go back to the beginning of the history of christianity in the first century um this is really when we can start to see the first so-called canons or guidelines to for the christian church ancient christians realized at quite an early date that they needed these rules and guidelines to help manage their the affairs of their communities originally this was because of the uh, the conversion of non-jewish people to christianity of course the first christians were jewish but then uh, as non-jewish people in the roman empire began to convert to christianity they needed rules and guidelines to manage the interactions uh, and the administration of these growing christian communities uh, and in fact, some of the earliest such rules are mentioned in the New Testament in the Acts of the Apostles uh, at a council held in Jerusalem, uh, probably around the middle of the first century AD, at which uh, the the first evidence of these kinds of canons uh, comes uh, across. Now, the next couple of centuries of Christian history are quite unclear. So we're talking about the 1st, 2nd and 3rd centuries AD. This is uh, when Christianity was illegal within the Roman Empire. Uh, And of course, during this period, the Roman Empire controlled the entire Mediterranean Sea region. So Christianity is mainly spreading within the Roman Empire to some extent uh, in East Asia and Africa as well. Uh, But uh, mainly within the Roman Empire is where Christianity is spreading so that's the region we're talking about now christianity was illegal it was officially persecuted so we don't have a lot of evidence for the development of their canons uh, during this time period but there is some written evidence that survives for collections of rules or guidelines about how christians should live their lives so one example i could give is the uh, a text called the didachi or which is greek for the teaching and this is a short collection of statements and stipulations on how christians should live their lives some scholars have dated this as early as the first century a.d it may also be from the second century so very early on now of course rules and guidelines aren't the same thing as a fully fleshed out legal system Uh, and we can date the beginnings of christian and thus also byzantine canon law as a a legal system Uh, we can date this to the fourth century a.d Now, the fourth century A.D. is when Christianity becomes legalized within the Roman Empire for the first time. So famously, the emperor Constantine I legalized Christianity in his uh, Edict of Milan of 313. And then one of his successors, the emperor Theodosius I, would make Christianity into the official religion of the Roman Empire in 380. So the fourth century saw Christianity gradually become first legal and then later the official state religion within the Roman Empire. And as it gained this imperial recognition and support, it obviously began to spread much more rapidly. The number of Christians increased exponentially in the fourth century, and as the number of Christian adherents increased, the complexity of the theological and administrative problems facing the Christian church also increased as well. And so it's in the fourth century that we start to see uh, the the first great major councils of bishops. Now, if you're not familiar with the church, bishops are kind of like the the standards leaders of local Christian communities and collectively, the bishops of all the Christian communities throughout the world make up uh, a sort of notional collective leadership of the christian church Uh, this is how it's viewed in late antiquity at least in the fourth century a.d now um, as theological and administrative problems started to multiply in this time period and as uh, christians and also roman imperial authorities very quickly realized the need to resolve these problems they began to assemble in councils or synods of these bishops Uh, and of course there are different kinds of councils some of them were just local regional councils but some of them also attempted to be much more universal in fact they're known as universal councils which uh, in Greek, it is uh, an economic or an ecumenical council. It literally means a universal council. So they aspire to have all the bishops of the Christian world show Now, in practice, of course, it's not really all the bishops, but it's quite a lot of bishops. It's the majority of bishops mm-hmm. within the Roman Empire. And so it's believed that while these bishops are meeting together in council, they're guided by the Holy Spirit, by God, uh, who give, grants them divine wisdom so they are able to issue sets of canons sets of rules and guidelines for the church which can be seen said to be inspired by god now not all canons are inspired by god so the local regional councils because they only represent a small selection of bishops they are not seen as being inspired by the holy spirit in the same way um and then there would there are various other kinds of canons as well. Uh, it's a little bit complicated about how other sorts of texts become recognized as canons, but you could say that the core selection of the original Christian canons are these rules, these guidelines issued by, uh, the ecumenical and local councils, of bishops, which begin in the fourth century Roman empire. Now, how does this become Byzantine canon law? Cause so far, I've just been talking about the Roman empire. Well. The late fourth century is when most historians would traditionally date the emergence of what we call the Byzantine Empire. For those of you who might not be familiar with what the Byzantine Empire is, this is not a uh, a historically accurate term. It's an, an anachronism. Uh, it is uh, a term that was created in the modern period, in the sixteenth century. In fact, to describe effectively the eastern half of the Roman Empire in the Middle Ages. So this is from the late fourth century to fourteen fifty three. So mm-hmm. uh, this was the mostly Greek-speaking half of the Roman Empire um, after the the division of the Roman Empire into western and eastern halves in the in the year 395 the eastern half had its capital in the city of constantinople of course founded by constantine the emperor who legalized christianity and uh it was largely greek in culture it was very much economically focused on the eastern mediterranean and in the fifth century when the western roman empire uh, was um, well you could say when it collapsed uh, and was either uh, conquered by or transformed into a series of so-called barbarian kingdoms the eastern roman empire continued to exist with its capital in constantinople and its main spoken language being greek and so after the 4th and 5th centuries we traditionally refer to this as the byzantine empire because the name the original name of the city of constantinople before it became constantinople was byzantium hence byzantine so when we talk about Byzantine canon law, what we're talking about is the canon law of this early uh, early Christian church in the Roman Empire as it developed in the medieval Eastern Roman Empire as it evolved
0: within the Byzantine Empire. Excellent uh, answer, and thank you for expanding on all that, James. So the canon law before then, to clarify one, one point, and then we can work our way, you know, after it split the the West and the East. Before that split, any canon law would would it be considered all from the Roman Church at that point? Ah,
1: uh, well, this is a good question because the term Roman Church in this early period did not mean the same thing as what it means today. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if the term Roman church in this early period literally referred to the church within the city of Rome.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: There was no concept of yet of Rome being, uh, emblematic of universal Christianity. There was no concept yet that, um, the whole church throughout the world could be considered Roman or Roman Catholic, uh, people would generally refer to the church as the, uh, what they would say is the, the uh, Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church, if you want to give it its full title. This is what is written in the Nicene Creed, the um, early fourth century statement of Christian belief. So it was seen as Catholic, which uh, literally is, is actually another way of saying universal So, it's like the word ecumenical I mentioned earlier. Catholic, it's a Greek word meaning throughout the whole, so throughout the whole world. Um, And apostolic in the sense that it was founded by the apostles of Jesus Christ. Now, the concept of a quote unquote Roman church, uh, particularly in in its form as uh, the Roman Catholic Church that we know it today. Uh, this is uh, an idea that developed much later on in the Middle Ages and really in the early modern period to some extent. So really it's best in this early period when we're talking about you know, the Roman Empire, the 4th, 5th centuries AD, try not to think in terms of Roman or Orthodox or anything like that. Really just try to think of it as the Christian church. Those divisions will start to emerge, but they're, they're not there quite yet.
0: Okay, and one of the the reasons I asked that was you mentioned the meetings, the the, the synods that synods that uh, occurred. Was there early signs of Rome posturing their position in those meetings prior to the split? Because uh, for some reason, like Apostle Peter went to Rome originally. Yes, so that is the, the traditional story, or
1: you. Some people might say legend that the Apostle Peter was the the first bishop of Rome. The idea that the Apostle Peter was a sort of head bishop with control over the whole church doesn't really start to emerge until the 5th and 6th centuries. And of Mm -hmm. course, it emerges within the Church of Rome itself people in places like Constantinople don't really agree with this idea that uh, that there's some kind of Roman leadership over the church. So the first time that uh, the idea of Rome asserting itself, the first time that this becomes a significant issue in uh, the ecumenical councils is in the 5th century AD. So before the The final collapse of the Western Roman Empire, but not long before, really just a couple of decades before Um, in the year 451, there was an ecumenical council uh, held in Constantinople um in fact it's just interesting briefly on a quick tangent here to yeah, note yeah. the places where these ecumenical councils yeah. are held the first one is in nicaea which is close to constantinople the second one is in constantinople the third one is in the city of ephesus which is also quite close to constantinople uh and then the fourth one is in a city called chalcedon which is again very close to constantinople so A lot of these councils, or all of the ecumenical ones so far, are being held around Constantinople, not around Rome. And in fact, Roman representation uh, is limited to, uh, well, the Pope himself does not go to these councils, he sends representatives in his place. But at the uh, fourth ecumenical council, this council in Chalcedon, in 451, there is a very controversial canon which is issued, which is canon 28, Um, And I can briefly just quote uh, from some of this Mm -hmm. to give you an idea of why this is a controversial canon. Um, The canon reads that the fathers rightly granted privileges, so privileges of law, legal status or honor, to the throne of old Rome. That means to the papacy, basically, to the bishop of the the original city of Rome itself, because it was the imperial city. And the 150 most religious bishops... Uh, Motivated by the same consideration, uh, this is the 150 most religious bishops who are gathered now at Chalcedon um, in 451. Mm -hmm. Um, They have decided to give equal privileges to the most holy throne of New Rome. And New Rome, of course, is Constantinople, the the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. So this canon of Chalcedon tries to put um, Constantinople on an equal footing in terms of what they call privileges it's very questionable what that actually means of course Um, but it gives equal privileges to Constantinople as it does to Rome and this is controversial because the Romans feel that their church is the most important within the empire Um, and to this day the Roman church has always selectively rejected this one canon canon 28 from the Council of Chalcedon so this happened at an early date but we're still not quite yet at the point where the popes of Rome are trying to assert total leadership over the church. And we're still not yet at a point where the question of legal primacy or jurisdictional primacy, like whether that belongs to all the bishops of the church collectively or just to the Bishop of Rome or just to the Bishop of Constantinople or some combination of those.
0: Yeah. And I presume the Roman Church uh, wouldn't would not have been in agreement with that particular canon, um, especially if you said that today they still haven't fully acknowledged um, its its uh, veracity. Um, but would they have been present in that council meeting at that time? They would have had
1: uh, representatives of okay. the Roman Church, and in fact, this uh, this particular canon. Um, was rejected by the representatives if i am remembering off the top of my head uh, the, there were later canons of other councils uh particularly let me think now i believe it's the council of trillo as well uh the the entire council of trillo this is in 692 mm-hmm. um, would actually be completely rejected by the roman church but at this early date um the the Roman Church does have representatives present on behalf of the Pope at the Council of Chalcedon, uh, but they're not willing to actually accept this one particular canon.
0: Yeah, okay, understood. Yeah, it's kind of visualizing it's a meeting where people are voting kind of thing on stuff. Okay. Um
1: we get talk about the question of how the how if there was voting that happened as well.
0: Was there voting uh, that happened?
1: <laughs> was there voting? Um, sort of <laughs> yes, there, there was voting, but it has to be there has to be consensus. Uh, so it you couldn't pass something simply by a majority. There has to be complete full agreement hmm. among all the bishops. And of course, the way that the textual sources present uh, present it to us, it seems like it sounds like the bishops always came to agreement on everything, except in this one particular case, interestingly, where. Uh, this one canon was rejected by the by the papacy, um, but people were more or less able to ignore that for a few centuries. Uh, but in principle, all the bishops were supposed to agree with each other and come to a consensus decision. In practice, we can only speculate, but it seems very likely that there would have been some uh, pressure exerted on people who were less than willing to agree to things because it's important to note that particularly at these early ecumenical councils um, it would not just have been a council of bishops although they would be the main people present the roman emperors themselves would actually have been in attendance for at least some of the sessions of these councils and quite possibly they might have brought some of their imperial guardsmen along with them just to remind everybody who is in charge
0: okay So, post-395, let's talk about that. How were Byzantine canon laws created?
1: Well, in much the same way as they had been pre-395, they continued to hold uh, ecumenical and local regional councils. It's worth noting as well that this is not just within the realm of the Eastern Roman Empire or the Byzantine Empire that this happened, Western European churches, even after the collapse of the Western Roman Empire, re- different regions of Western Europe also held their own local councils, which also passed their own canons as well. Um, but within the Byzantine Empire itself, after three ninety five, they continued to hold. Uh, let me count another uh, four ecumenical councils. This is at least according to the official reckoning, as they they eventually settled on. They held lots of councils some of which were later recognized as ecumenical Um, one or two of which were temporarily recognized as ecumenical but then after it became politically inconvenient were later unrecognized as ecumenical Uh, i can talk about a couple of those if you like but um in total the the byzantines came to recognize seven ecumenical councils the last of which was in the year 787 this was the second council of nicaea which was convened mainly to deal with a a theological problem around the role of icons or images in christian worship now the reason why i say it's a little bit complicated with councils being recognized and unrecognized is because uh, the second council of nicaea itself which uh, affirmed the validity of using uh, artwork or images in christian worship. It followed on from a different council called the Council of Hierrea, which was in the 750s. This council had attacked and criticized uh, the use of artwork and images in Christian worship. Now, at the time, the emperor who oversaw that council, um, who was another emperor, Constantine, funnily enough, Constantine V, um, he presented his council as ecumenical. He presented his council as having universal validity. But then later on, when it was overturned by the Second Council of Nicaea, it was no longer recognized as being universal. So there's a, there's a certain degree of retrospectiveness to what is valid and what isn't valid. Um, so these are the, the main seven ecumenical councils. There were actually a couple more councils in the, the ninth and uh, well in the ninth century, uh, but they were not actually recognized as ecumenical in the end. There were a few more local councils as well. Um, something I haven't mentioned yet, which I should also mention, mm-hmm. is that in addition to canons issued by councils, uh, also the sayings of extremely authoritative church fathers. So this is th- these are from the writings that we know as patristic writings because they're patristic. They're written by church fathers from the Latin word "pater" for father. Um, so these are particularly authoritative figures, mostly in the fourth and fifth centuries, but there are some from other centuries as well. Uh, Very famous authoritative Christian figures who had influential writings. uh, And a lot of the time, short excerpts or quotations were taken from their writings and actually kind of turned into canons or recognized as canons. So the sayings of these influential Christian church fathers also some of them entered the the corpus of canon law as well there is no equivalent in byzantium to the the papal decrees that emerge in the medieval west so the patriarch of constantinople uh patriarch is basically in this case just a fancy way of saying the bishop of constantinople um he is I suppose you could say the closest parallel that the byzantine church has to the roman pope but he's still not exactly the same because he doesn't have the same level of authority within the byzantine church that the pope does within the western church he does issue decrees and rulings and interpretations but none of those are ever recognized as being canons uh, of the same stature as the canons of the church fathers or the ecumenical councils so, we can um, more or less say that by the end of the ninth century, the corpus of Byzantine canon law more or less became complete. Though there were no further ecumenical councils after this point, at least no further ecumenical councils that were generally recognized as being ecumenical and are still recognized to this day.
0: So, these ecumenical councils um, that were meeting was it only the churches in the eastern half of the empire that were meeting
1: yes so as a general rule of course they aim for universality they ideally they would like to get all the bishops in all the world to be able to attend uh, in practice though they are There are projects that are often sponsored by, or they're always sponsored by the emperors of Constantinople, by the Eastern Roman emperors or the Byzantine emperors. And in practice, while they would have liked to be able to draw bishops from outside the empire, it was generally very difficult to do so, either because those bishops were impossible, maybe they lived in... In other states that were hostile to the Byzantine Empire and would not permit them to travel, or because those bishops themselves were unwilling to travel. So, a lot of Western bishops, of course, fell into this category. Of bishops from Western Europe who were not under Byzantine rule didn't really fancy the idea of going to Byzantine ecumenical councils. Um, or sometimes there, there is also an even more fundamental difficulty that people in the Middle Ages faced. And that is the limited spread of information and the simple difficulty of travel and of um, uh, and of spreading news. Even if uh, the emperors in Constantinople might have wanted a bishop from somewhere like Ireland or Spain to attend the Second Council of Nicaea, mm-hmm. uh, the odds are that there would be no real way of getting words to those bishops. Um, and even if they were able to do so, and for some reason, a bishop from Ireland decided to travel all the way to Constantinople, he probably wouldn't have been able to make it in time because the journey would have been too long and too difficult. And So in practice, this means that it's mostly bishops from the Byzantine Empire and its close neighbors who were within its sphere of influence.
0: Okay, and one of the things, and I guess it was a roundabout way of asking the, the, the question was the roman church invited to these councils in the east and i know there's more churches in this present time than the roman but the roman church is a uh, an important institution in this conversation so i'm trying to um, understand the contrast um, between the two so where that was the roman church invited to these uh byzantine councils and and can you also speak about then uh, it depends. I guess it depends on your answer, but can you speak a little bit about the contrast between uh, the two and how they would create the the the, the, the canon laws?
1: Okay. Yes. Uh, so, um, up until the ninth century, the Roman Church was indeed invited to send representatives, and they did send representatives to all of the major Byzantine church councils. Um, again, these are not representatives from all of Western Europe, but just representatives of the Bishop of Rome himself. Uh, and th- there would have been some other bishops from places like Southern Italy that were still under the sway of the Byzantine Empire. Uh, so in a sense, you could say that the Western church did still have a participating role in these Byzantine church councils, uh, at least until the ninth century. Okay. How from the the ninth and the early tenth centuries, various political issues would start to get in the way uh, and prevent that from happening afterwards.
0: Okay, understood. Um, and so, as a major difference, I think you highlighted this in your answer in one of your answers. Is the is one of the major differences between how Byzantine uh, canon law was created? Is it was more of a council approach in creating the laws, whereas with the uh roman church it was the bishop of rome that was principally responsible for creating canon law uh,
1: well it's a bit of a an oversimplification please if, if yeah. i had to
0: oversimplify
1: it, i would say yes that that's okay. how i would simplify it, right? okay um rome's role in canon law itself developed gradually over time and so the, the kind of classic image that we have of the bishop of rome making canon law uh, actually dates mostly to the 11th century and later on, Um, although you can definitely see the roots of that attitudes that the Bishop of Rome can make canon law. You can see that in earlier centuries, but it doesn't fully manifest itself quite yet.
0: Okay, and to some degree, the Roman church had influence on uh, Byzantine canon law up to the 9th century, and very little to no... No influence uh, on canon law, Byzantine canon law after the ninth century. Yes,
1: that's, that's pretty much correct.
0: Okay, understood. Okay, um, can you can you can you give a couple of examples of you know and you don't have to go too deep on it, um, but to give people a sense of what a actual canon law is content wise, can you give a, a couple of examples of what would have been passed as canon law in the Byzantine Empire?
1: Yeah, so the canons actually can take quite a wide variety of forms. Some of them are very short, some of them are much longer. It depends on what councils. Some of the councils were were very brief, and some of them were much more loquacious. You know, they they, mm-hmm. they went on a much greater length. So I'll quickly just say something about the subject areas that these canon laws would touch upon. So they tend to be things that relate. The, the belief, the worship, and the ritual life of the church, the administration of the church, and then aspects of the lives of lay people that were seen to be particularly relevant to their religious life. So things like marriage, baptism, uh, divorce, um, to some extent inheritance law, Um
0: Questions of uh, communion uh, and so on and so forth. So they cover quite a broad
1: range of topics. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Mm-hmm. Here are a couple of short ones. Uh, so from the fourth century uh, Council of Gangra, this is a local council within the Eastern Roman Empire. Um, Here is one, uh, a canon which uh, prohibits women from engaging in transvestitism. So canon 13 of the Council of Gangra says, if any woman under pretense of asceticism, that is pretending to be like a a monk or a nun, uh, should change her clothing and instead of a woman's accustomed clothing put on that of a man, let her be anathema. That means let her be cut off from communion. So that's the entire law. Very short, single sentence statement. Likewise, uh, Canon Twenty of the Council of Ansira from the uh, three fourteen. This is a very early local council. Um, states: If the wife of anyone has committed adultery, or if any man commits adultery, it seems fit uh, that he should he or she should be restored to full communion only after seven years. Uh, so this means they have to do seven years of penance before they can take communion again after being found guilty of this. Those are to a couple of short ones, um, and they deal, of course, with kind of more personal matters relating to what clothing you wear or your, to your marriage. Um, there are canons could deal with much uh, bigger topics of course of theology and belief for example so at uh, the council of ephesus in uh, the, uh well it's uh, 431 off the top of my head um so mm-hmm.
0: well, let's say the 430s roughly understood on. yeah yeah the council of ephesus uh, canon 7
1: states that it is unlawful for any man to bring forward or to write or to compose a different faith, so a heresy, uh, as a rival to that established by the Holy Fathers who were assembled with the aid of the Holy Spirit in Nicaea. So that's a reference to the First Council of Nicaea. But those who shall dare to compose a different faith or to introduce or offer it to persons desiring to turn to the acknowledgement of the truth, whether from heathenism or from Judaism, so that's if someone teaches, if there's someone who wants to convert to Christianity and someone teaches them the wrong version of Christianity, um, this person shall be deposed if they be bishops or clergymen, and... Um, And if they are lay people, then they should be anathematized or excommunicated. Uh, That's a longer one. Uh, Some of them deal with topics like uh, fasting and diet. Uh, So what kinds of food you should eat when, of course, during Lent, Christians will abstain from certain kinds of food. Um, So Canon 56, for example, of the Council of Trullo, states, uh, and this is from uh, the seventh century, states, We have learned that in the regions of Armenia and in other places, certain people eat eggs and cheese on the Sabbath uh, and the Lord's days of the Holy Lent. It seems good, therefore, that the whole church of God, which is in all the world, should follow one rule and keep the fast perfectly. And as they abstain from everything which is killed, so also should they abstain from eggs and cheese, which are the fruit and produce of those animals from which we abstain. But if any person does not observe this law, if they are a cleric, let them be deposed. But if they're a lay person, let them be cut off, let them be excommunicated. So that's just a sample of some of the kinds of topics that they cover. Uh, And you can see that some of them are very short, some of them are much longer as well.
0: Thank you for being so specific there. I think that helps people understand the contours more of uh, what canon law was in this period. Um, how can you speak about how canon laws were disseminated and enforced? Right. So this is
1: a very big question. I, I'll stop. The, the, this question of dissemination is actually quite complicated. So I'll come to that second, mm-hmm. if that's all right. Yep. I'll start with the question of enforcement. So it's important to bear in mind with uh, the, the nature of these laws, that this is not like a kind of ecclesiastical criminal law. Uh, none of these laws, none of their their penalties that they prescribe for offenders involve sending people to jail or torturing them or executing them. So they they don't really require coercive force. They don't require you know policemen or soldiers to come and carry them out. For the most part, they govern uh, how church leaders should react in certain situations. Uh, so, for example, you, as you could see from some of those cases I just read out there, a lot of the, the penalties that they prescribe are things like excommunication. So, to enforce excommunication, of course, all that has to happen is a bishop says to a, you know, the priest in his diocese, this person has been excommunicated for three years, make sure you don't give them communion for three years. You know? um, Or if it's something like, Uh, a a priest has committed uh, an offense that requires him to be deposed, the bishop just says that he just deposes him, the the person's no longer a priest. Um, There are other cases as well, which um, they they almost always, if it involves a penalty, it does not require any kind of physical coercive enforcement, if you see what I mean. It's just governs the the reaction of church leaders. Now, Um, how were they disseminated? This is actually a, a very good question, and it was a very big problem that faced not just the Byzantine church, but all medieval Christian bishops in a way. Because if you think about it, These laws, they're not being promulgated by a single individual lawgiver who writes like a constitution for the whole church and just publishes it and gives it out to everybody. These canons, they're being passed by lots of different councils. Some of them are ecumenical. Some of them are regional. Uh, Some of them, they happen over a very long period of time. They're spread out in various different places. Some of them, a lot of people probably never even heard of. If you were a Byzantine Christian, you likely weren't even aware that there, was, there were councils happening in Spain or in Germany or in France. You might not be familiar with them at all. So there are lots of limitations on, on how you could learn about these laws. There are also lots of limitations on how you could um, easily gather and publish these laws in a kind of usable, practical way. So they're being passed in all these different councils at different times, they're not being compiled into an individual like codification that is being constantly updated. Of course, there are codifications that are made eventually. Um, So from the sixth century, we start to see our first surviving evidence for um, co- compilations or codifications that attempts to include all the different canon law issued by all these different councils actually there were almost suddenly earlier versions of these or earlier compilations but they've mostly been lost they don't exist anymore but in the sixth century under the reign of the eastern roman emperor justinian um you may, if if your listeners are familiar with Justinian, they will likely know that he's famous as a, a great codifier of laws. One of the biggest things that the Emperor Justinian in the middle of the 6th century did was he commanded the creation of a, a huge codification of Roman civil law, the so-called Corpus Juris Civilis, sometimes also known as the Justinian Code. And... This was an attempt to compile all of the disparate civil laws of the Roman Empire into one kind of coherent codification that could actually be used practically in a court of law and that lawyers could use to learn from. Now, after Justinian did this uh, in the following decades, Byzantine churchmen began to try to kind of copy that idea. They tried to create their own codifications of canon law as well. And You can tell that this was quite difficult for them because we have many, many different surviving versions of these codifications. I'm not going to bore you with, by going through every single one, um, but there were a few in the 6th century, there were then attempts in the 7th century to edit them. And in, uh, following centuries, there were further edits, uh, then the, the versions, the codifications that they came up with proved to be quite long. And remember, this is in an age before the printing press and before modern paper. So long means expensive, uh, and expensive means that not many people can afford to buy or to read them. Uh, also, because they're so long, not many people will bother trying to read them. So in addition to the, the big codifications of all the canons, the people also tried to make what are known as synopses or uh, abbreviations, summaries, like short versions mm-hmm. of canon law. And they all faced a similar set of challenges, which is that all of these different councils issued canons on a wide range of topics. So to be usable in a kind of practical way, if you were interested in say what the canons had to say about marriage, then you needed to know which councils issued canons on marriage so that you could then look Mm. up those specific canons. Um, so people realized there was a need to create thematic collections, so collections divided by theme rather than by chronology or rather than by council. Hmm. But then the problem with that is that if you wanted to find out what did the canons of the Council of Sardica, let's say, what were they about? Mm-hmm. then. You couldn't just look through every single thematic collection right. of canons. You had to have a collection of the canons of the Council of Saragossa. So over many centuries, they went through lots of different permutations mm. of ways to arrange this, and they eventually settled on a solution. Uh, I I'll, I can go into detail of on this if you want, but we don't have to because it's kind of technical. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that the Church itself never af- settled on an official. Uh, an official codification that would be standardized throughout the whole church so the technical term for these byzantine canon law manuscripts these codifications is they're referred to as non-legislative codifications which means they're they're actually made by private individuals they're not created by a legislative body like a state body and they're not officially promulgated as the the standard collection of church canon law that everyone has to use um it's also it's worth noting that the catholic church the western church took quite a long time to develop its own version of like a standard canon law collection as well so what this means is because there's no standard version all of these different versions have been created by different people because they want something that they can use to help uh, help them learn what the canon law is and then help them actually exercise and practice canon law, um, but the, the, what this means is that, they, that maybe they didn't always want to include every single canon law text because it's quite expensive, or they only wanted to focus on the canons that were most relevant to them, um, or they thought that one way of arranging the canons wasn't very good and they wanted to do it a different way. So we have quite a wide variety of different codifications of canon law that existed. Now, they all codified the same corpus of canon law. The canons, that the, the texts themselves that were being codified were all part of the same body of law, the same legal tradition. But the different ways in which it was codified and disseminated, uh, were, um, there, there's quite a lot of variety with those.
0: Okay. Where was the uh, documents, the actual um, canon laws stored physically?
1: Was it physically stored? Well, it would have been stored within the book collections of cathedrals and monasteries. Uh, there is evidence that some priests, some local parish priests occasionally had their own copies of canon law texts as well. Um, but there, there was no one master text of Byzantine canon law. Like I say, we have lots of different codifications, right? was throughout the whole empire, but generally speaking, uh, the, the expectation would be that every bishop would have their own copy, their own legal text, which would presumably be stored in the library of their cathedral. Uh, and a lot of monasteries also would have a, a text in their libraries as well.
0: And was there uh, like a master uh, spot that would be the somewhat canonical source in Constantinople or somewhere?
1: So Constantinople did have its own collections, its own codifications, yes, and occasionally we see references to... Um, the, the, the name of these codifications are nomocanons. Um I could talk about why, why they're called nomocanons if you like, but that's the technical mm-hmm. term for it. So we do see, occasionally see writers make reference to what, what is said in the quote nomo canon of the throne of constantinople which implies that mm. the the version of the, the the codified version of the text that existed in constantinople was seen as being particularly authoritative um but like i say uh the, it, we can't think of this as like a standardized text that everyone had to follow it was really just seen as being the most authoritative because it was in constantinople which was the center of the church
0: okay understood uh some wind-up questions uh you'd mentioned the ninth century either as of the ninth century or after the ninth century you can clarify in your answer the the council's uh, stopped meeting I think you also said that uh, the canon law Byzantine canon law was considered complete correct me if I'm wrong in any way um, so if that's the case why did they stop meeting as of the after the ninth century so
1: Councils continued to meet, actually, within Constantinople. The mm-hmm. difference is not that
0: they stopped meeting, but that their decrees stopped being recognized
1: as essential parts of canon law. Actually, they to be to be entirely honest with the listeners, there were still councils until the end of the Byzantine Empire, and a lot of them issued canons as well. But those canons, those rules or guidelines, mm-hmm. never properly made it into the corpus of quote-unquote official byzantine canon law so it's a question of a change of perception and mentality around the nature of the decrees themselves Um, now why exactly does this happen around the 9th and the 10th centuries
0: it's hard to know for certain to be
1: quite honest Mm -hmm. but I suppose it's related to a, a shift in uh, to a more academic approach to law that begins to emerge with Byzantine canonists in this mm-hmm. period. Uh, they start to they start to view the law as something which is written down in books and is meant to be studied and not meant to be added to it in a sense. um, Sorry for the bad pun, but it becomes canonized, it becomes a canon of canon law. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you if I if you ask me, why does it happen in the ninth and the 10th century, I would say it's actually very hard to put your finger on an exact reason. Um, It may well be because this is also the time when the split with the Western church starts to become clearer. Hmm. Uh, so maybe they feel like their councils have less of a claim to universality without the, uh, any representation from the Western Church. I think that would be a fair thing to say. Uh, but at the same time, I think it would also be because it's a symbol of the way that the, the texts from basically before the period of iconoclasm, so that's the 8th and the ninth centuries, um, if you remember, I said the last group ecumenical council was in 788, and it dealt with the issue of icons or artwork in the liturgy. This, uh, this issue of iconoclasm is kind of a watershed moment. It's like a wall across the history of the Byzantine church, and anything that came before iconoclasm was seen as being especially authoritative or especially prestigious. Uh, And so anything that was added afterwards was seen as being not quite up to the same level of prestige and authority as those earlier canons uh, because of this kind of watershed of iconoclasm.
0: Okay. Does Byzantine canon law live on today in contemporary times in any religions or denominations of Christianity?
1: it certainly does uh it is essentially the canon law system that exists within the modern eastern orthodox church um so by that i mean uh what we would you may know it by names like the greek orthodox church the russian orthodox church the romanian Serbian orthodox church all these collective orthodox churches um under the general umbrella term of the eastern orthodox church they're all in a sense the continuation of the church that existed within the Byzantine empire or they, you could say that descended from the church within the Byzantine empire and they all of those churches that i just mentioned in russia greece serbia romania bulgaria etc cetera, etc cetera, they all continue to follow this exact these exact texts of byzantine canon law now they have uh, in all those cases they've They've either translated them into new languages like Romanian or Slavonic, of course. Uh, They've reordered them. They've created new published editions that are more practical in the modern era. Uh, But it's essentially still Byzantine canon law.
0: Okay. Speaking with you, James, has been a great way to start my day today in Toronto. Thanks for coming on the show. (laughs) It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for having me. So again, everybody, the book that Dr. Morton wrote that I mentioned at the start of the episode, Byzantine Religious Law in Medieval Italy. I'll drop a link to it in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. James and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye.